The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Hope you brought a Bible with you. <clears throat> if you did, turn with me to 1 Samuel. We're going to look at 13, 14, and 15 today. We're going to look at the downfall of King Saul. I would like to say it was a good run for Saul. It was very short-lived, and we will see that this morning. If you remember where we left off last week, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, we left off with really some good news. <clears throat> Samuel would tell the people in chapter 12, verse 22, he said, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people but then he would go on to say, moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And it's kind of interesting because verse 24 and 25 really propel us into what we're going to look at today of chapter 13 through 15. Uh, it really is a, a sad story of what we will read together. And so we will read chapter 13, we'll eventually read chapter 15, and I'm going to do my best to summarize chapter 14 uh, for us. But let's first go to chapter 13, look at verse 1, and we'll read uh, the chapter together all the way to verse 23. It says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it, said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination of the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash, to the east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Then he waited seven days, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. 
You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road of Beth Horon. And another company turned to the road of the broader that overlooks the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pin for the plowshare, the mattocks, the forks, the axes to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So really any good news that we were left with after reading chapter 12 starts to dissolve a little bit as we read chapter 13 when it comes to Israel, because what we see in verses 1 through 14 is we see that Saul has a problem with impatience and he has a problem with the lack of trust uh, in who is to lead Israel, that God was to lead them, that God was their people. Yes, he was the king, but God would lead them. And so in verses 1 through 4, we see that some of the fame of Israel had started to spread, some of the word of what was going on, uh, even of Saul, and that Israel was actually a problem for the Philistines. As you get to verses 5 and 7, 5 through 7, the Bible tells us here that the Philistines now come up against Israel and that Israel flees. And it's really a sad scene. All of Israel flees away, trembling, even Saul himself. It says Saul would stay in Gilgal and the people would follow him trembling. So this mighty king, head and shoulders above everybody in Israel, now we have as a picture of running away from the enemy trembling and leading his people in the trembling out of fear of what might happen to them. Verses 8 through 15, we see this fear overtakes Saul so much that even though Samuel had told him to wait in Gilgal that he would be there after seven days, we see that the fear had overcome Saul at this moment. Because he was, he was surrounded. I mean, he was, he was surrounded by the Philistines and what was going to take place. And it seemed as if Samuel was not going to keep his word. It was day seven at this point. He was not to be found. And so for Saul, time really had run out. He decided it would be best if he would seek after the Lord. He decided it would be best if he would take and burn the sacrifice and to seek what the Lord would want from him. Because like I said, Samuel wasn't there. And it's interesting, right after that is done, Samuel shows up. It's like that, isn't it? You remember that as a kid? Right after you did something wrong, dad showed up. Mom shows up. Always seems to be the case. And Saul here disobeys, but he doesn't act like he disobeyed. Samuel's coming and he runs out to him. Oh, you're here. 
And he doesn't get a word of encouragement from Samuel. No, instead he gets Samuel saying, what, in the, what have you done? What is going on here? You know the law of the Lord. You know that this is not your right to do this. It is not your job to offer sacrifices here. But he'd done that. And so Samuel tells Saul that sin has led to this. And in fact, because of this sin, his kingdom will be no longer. And you notice what Samuel says. He says, listen, the Lord was going to let your kingdom go forever. But because of this sin, it will be no more. Now, I think uh, we have to look at Saul with a little bit of sympathy, at least. I think that is fair because think about the situation he was in. The enemy is surrounding him. The man of God said that he would be here and he's not showing up. It's like the last hour. People are starting to flee from Saul. The, the people of Israel see what's about to take place and so they're running away. They, they are leaving and Saul knows as commander of the army, I need to do something here to keep my people here, right? We're, if we're gonna fight in this battle, I need as many men as possible and the men are waiting and they're, they're sick of waiting, and in fact, I'm kind of sick of waiting, right? I'm kind of nervous about this. So, so what are we going to do? Well, Samuel's just going to come and seek after the Lord, and this is what he's going to do. Let's do that, right? Let's do that. I think if we're really being honest, it makes sense. It makes sense from our standpoint to do those things. But the problem was, that was not what God had commanded of him. It might make sense but it wasn't what God had said to do. It wasn't what Samuel had told Saul to do. And so he chooses then to sin against God because he thinks that this is a better plan. And as a result, we see that his kingdom is, is taken away from him. What we see here, and we're going to continue to see, is we really start to see the heart of Saul. We begin to see, you remember I said uh, back a while ago when we were preaching through Samuel, that Saul is a king after man's own heart. And that's really important to remember because we're starting to see Saul's heart and we're starting to see that Saul's heart, in fact, is man-centered. It's not God-centered. It is man-centered. And it, it starts to come out more and more as we continue through Samuel here together. So Saul gets this rough word from Samuel. And then in verses 15 through 23, we really are laid out before our eyes a really sad state in Israel. They're supposed to go to war. There's very few men at this point. They've all went away, and none of them even own a sword. The king has a sword, and Jonathan has a sword, but everybody else has sickles and instruments for work in the field and doing stuff like this. And the sad part about it is those things aren't even sharp. Because the Philistines are the ones who control the blacksmiths. And so they really have nothing. And so at the end of chapter 13, we're left with a really sad state of affairs for Israel, for God's chosen people. It doesn't look good. Well, then we get to verse 14. Let's, let's read just a little bit of, verse four, of chapter 14, and then I'll, I'll just summarize it the best I can from there. It says, Now it happened one day, that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah 
under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, the people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passage by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sinna. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. I want to stop there in verse 6. So the scene is kind of set for us there in chapter 14, verse 1 through 5. You have Jonathan, who is Saul's son, and he decides to take action. In the next verse, you have King Saul, who's chilling under a pomegranate tree with someone he shouldn't be with. If you remember the history of Israel, which we've studied together in 1 Samuel, you remember Ichabod. Remember that story? How Ichabod was born in the pains of his mother and his mother died and his father died. And Eli, who was the priest of the land, when he heard the battle and that his sons had died and that the ark was captured, he dies. And why was this? Because they were wicked priests. And God said, your line shall not remain. And so the picture you have here, catch this. You have a king who is no longer God's king sitting with the priests who are no longer God's priests under a pomegranate tree with Israel surrounded by the enemy, just sitting up there, not leading, sitting up there all alone. And now you have this guy named Jonathan, who is the king's son, who decides, you know what? Don't tell my dad I'm doing this, but I've had enough of this. I'm going to go fight. I'm going to go and defend. And it's interesting because when you get to verse 6, he shows faith here, but he shows faith in a way that isn't very common for many of us today. Because notice the wordage he uses. He doesn't say to his armor bearer, let's go take the Philistines because the Lord has given them to us. He can win by few or many. No, what Jonathan says is, maybe the Lord will give them to us because he can use few or many to win his battles. Now you might look at that and say, that's really weak faith. I would say that's real faith. Because the faith that we learn of in Scripture is not a faith of guaranteed success. Right? That, that to me is a false faith. That to me is a, is a faith that is just a, a wish that's not really real. But what we have here is it's a faith saying, if God wants us to win, we will win. But I can't sit here anymore and not do anything. I can't be like my dad up there under the pomegranate tree just, just eating away up there. I have to go. And if God wants us to win, we will win. And so as you get to uh, verses all the way 6 through 23, what you see happen here is in verse 7 through 10, a plan is set. He says, we will show ourselves to the Philistines. If they tell us to come up to them, we know the Lord has given them to us. But if they say they're going to come to us, we're in trouble because he hasn't given them to us. And so they do this. After the plan is set, they do this. And they say, come up to us. 
And so it's interesting because I read a part of that passage that you would say, I don't know why he's reading this. It talks about a sharp rock here and a sharp rock there. It shows the difficulty that would have happened for Jonathan to get to them. Jonathan and the armor bearer. But he would climb this mountain. He would scale this mountain. He would go up to them. And scripture tells us that when Jonathan and his armor bearer get there, they slay 20 Philistines. And then God begins to work in the midst of this. Panic sets in within the camp. There's an earthquake, which we've seen God do before. Saul hears what is happening because it is just, there's panic going on in the camp of the Philistines, so much so that Saul can hear it. And so then Saul and the rest of Israel hear this panic and they decide to attack. And so what we see in verse 20 is we see that there's so much chaos going on that when Israel gets there, the Philistines are actually fighting against each other. They're killing each other. At this point, scripture tells us that some of Israel had abandoned and deserted and actually joined the Philistine army. They were going to fight against their own people. But now God had caused them to rise up against the Philistines. So they were within the camp already. They start fighting the Philistines. And we have this dramatic victory in verse all the way to 23. We see that the Lord saves Israel. Right? We, we had such a horrible situation taking place. But now Jonathan acts. The Lord uses Jonathan, uses the armor bearer, but goes even beyond that. We see the Lord respond and the Lord saves Israel during this time. And so it's, it's really time to celebrate at the end of verse 23. But the problem is there's verse 24 because Saul's at it again. We see the ignorance of Saul in verse 24. Look, at it says, and the men of Israel were distressed that day. And you, you would stop there and say, why? You just won the battle. God just fought for you. Why in the world would they be distressed? Well, because this was why. It says, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, curses the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So Saul had required all of Israel to take this oath that they would not eat food until the battle was completely over. And so the people are now pursuing the Philistines who had ran away. And Saul makes, because of this bad oath, it's a bad decision that it causes distress on the people. Well, as you get to verse 25 through 30, it says that the people are wandering through the woods and it says the woods is like dripping with honey and nobody will touch it until Jonathan enters the woods. Jonathan enters the woods and it says he reaches down and he takes some of the honey and the people are like, whoa, your dad said nobody could eat anything. And Jonathan being a son, like a lot of sons do, my dad is not smart in this. We need to eat. Look at everybody. Everybody is hurting because if they would have been so much better, if they just would have ate food, why would my dad do this? This doesn't make any sense. And so Jonathan eats. That's what he does. He takes and he, he eats of the honey. He disobeys his father. Well, the people see this. And in verses 31 through 35, the people actually go a step further. They, they go and they, they take all these animals that they are taking from the Philistines and it says they kill them and they eat them. They eat them raw. They don't even cook them. They eat them with blood, it says, because they're, they're starving after this battle. And it's at this point that Saul enters into the scene and he's angry. He's angry of what is taking place. He's, he's angry for what he sees here, that the people are sinning against the Lord by eating animals with, with blood. And so Saul inquires of the Lord. It's very interesting. In verse 36, it says, now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. 
And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, hey, Saul, King Saul, let us draw near to God here. So look at verse 37. It's one of the saddest verses in scripture. So Saul asked counsel of God. You have the king of Israel asking of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. You see, Saul said the people are are sinning here, even though it's Saul's oath that was wrong. It was his leadership here that was really bad that caused the people into this, but he takes none of that onto himself. He blames the people, he inquires of the Lord, and he doesn't hear anything from the Lord. And so what does he do? He says, I'm going to cast lots then. We're gonna see who this falls to. And as he casts lots, it falls to Jonathan. And again, he makes a bad decision. His son who just led the army into victory, who God obviously worked through, he takes his son aside and begins to kill him. Because he said, this is what needs to be done for the person who sins. We need to kill you. And the people have to intercede on Jonathan's behalf. The people of Israel have to come in and say, listen, king, I know you're our king and I know that we've chosen you and we're whatever, but you're not doing this. This is not going to happen. And so it says that King Saul ends up relenting. We, we see that it doesn't, it doesn't happen, uh, that Jonathan is saved by the people. Well, this then leads us to chapter 15 together. I do want to read chapter 15. So let's do that. It says, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing, child, ox and sheep, camel, and donkey. I want to stop there real quick because if, you, if you've been here for a while, we went through the book of Esther and you'll remember I referenced this in the book of Esther. We talked about 1 Samuel chapter 15 and we talked about how this is a very difficult thing for us to grapple with. How God could say this, go and kill everybody, even the nursing infant, kill everything, sheep, oxen, kill it all. I'm, I don't want to Go back and talk about that again. You can do your own homework and go back to the Esther series and find it where we talked about it. But I just wanted to point that out. I didn't want to look like I was skipping over that. It says, so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them and tally them, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart. Get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Now, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret, or the King James Version says, repent, that I have set up Saul as king. 
for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed, he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Been here before. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission of which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, but they did it to sacrifice to the Lord our God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed that and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He also has rejected you from being king. This next section is pitiful. Then Saul said to Samuel, "I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because." I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, or the word might say repent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and saw Worship the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. Hey, better. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past me. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, 
And Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What a sad situation. What a sad story. God gives Saul a command to go and to destroy the Amalekites. But Saul decides to save the king, King Agag. He decides to save the best of the land and he brings it with him. But then we see that the word of the Lord comes to Samuel before Samuel even knows what's going on and tells Samuel what Saul has done. And so Samuel goes to Saul. Saul runs out to him again like he has done in the past and he says, I've obeyed God, aren't you so happy? And Samuel says, what is that I hear? What's the noise, all these sheep, all these oxen? Where are these from? You're supposed to destroy everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, The people took the good stuff. But listen, they took the good stuff for a good reason. They're gonna sacrifice it to the Lord. They thought the Lord would like that, that he'd like a gift. The Lord's told us to sacrifice things and this would just be a blessing to him. We we thought it would be best to, to bless God here. Not destroy it all, but to, to give it to him in a sacrifice. That, that's what we're going to do. Isn't this great, Samuel? Isn't this pious? Isn't this so religious? But yet again, what do we see here? We, we see Saul's heart because he disobeyed God directly. And he continually blamed the people. As the leader, he blamed the people. They took the best. And he's even now, if you've noticed, his words have changed because now he doesn't call God his God, does he? He continually calls him Samuel's God, your God, your God. See, sin has a way of doing that in our heart. Sin has a way of changing our relationship with God as we allow sin to be a part of our life, as we don't fight sin anymore, as we really give over to sin. We see how sin really enslaves so much so that you become blind. You really become blind to your sin. You start to try to approve it. And that's what we're seeing here with Saul. In verse 22 and 23, we see Samuel's response. And this are some verses that we'll stick to at the end of the message. But Samuel's response to Saul is really plain and clear. He says, listen, What God wants from you, King Saul, is obedience. Not not moralism, not religious piety, not some outside form of worship. What God wants from you is obedience. That's where he says obedience is better than sacrifice. But then he goes on after that and he exposes exposes the sin. And notice, notice how harsh this is. He says, for rebellion... In verse 23, rebellion, actually, King Saul, it's not just rebellion, like, oh, I'm just rebelling against my parents, or we'd say some things about that, but like, oh, these are their rebellious years, you know, everybody goes through this. Look what he compares it to. Your your, your, uh, Bible might say divination. It's witchcraft. He says rebellion is witchcraft. So the next time you go around saying, ah, you know, teens, they have their rebellious years, you might as well say, you know, they have their witchcraft years, we just let them dabble in that. No big deal. 
So you don't hear people say it that way. But we water sin down. Saul's trying to water sin down and Samuel's not gonna let him do that. He says, listen, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Your stubbornness is an iniquity and idolatry to the Lord. Oh, you, I'm just a stubborn person. No, you're, you're an idol worshiper. That's what you are. You see, we, again, we try to get cute with sin. And Samuel's saying, I'm not going to let you get cute with sin because there's nothing cute about sin. So it finally dawns, it seems, at least a little bit on Saul. And Saul then in verses 24 through uh, 35 there, go to, they go to Samuel and says, oh, please forgive me so that I can go back. And Samuel says, no, that's not happening. And so he turns to walk away from the king and the king in just an utter pathetic situation in front of all of Israel falls on his face and tries to grab Samuel's garments, which if you remember, his mother would make him every year and he rips it and it gives Samuel an opportunity to stop and to turn around and use that as a great analogy. Saul, I want you to know the Lord has just ripped the kingdom from you. Your, your, your forgiveness isn't given. What you're looking for, I cannot do. And I think at this point, it does dawn on Saul of what's happening here. He understands his rejection before God. He understands his sin in his heart. is not a heart for the Lord, it's a heart for man. And he actually reveals it then in that next verse because he says to, he says to Samuel, at least do me this. Before all the people, will you forgive me so that I can keep leading them? Not before God. Not before God, but before the people. Samuel, will you please make me look good before the people? I have to lead them. At least do that. And it says Saul relents to this. And so he does that. And it says that Saul then goes and worships the Lord there. But then Samuel, which is actually extremely unfair, and I hope Saul felt horrible about this, because you look at this situation of what Samuel does to the king and you might think, man, Samuel, that was horrible. I have to think Samuel thought it was horrible too because that was not his job. That was Saul's job. It was Saul's job to kill that king. But now Samuel's having to do it because Saul would not do it. And so Samuel then obeys the word of the Lord and fulfills what, what God had told Saul to do. And then again, one, a very sad verse, verse 34 and 35, it says that uh, Samuel leaves Saul to never see him again. So what you have a picture of, the word of the Lord leaves Saul forever. Forever. It won't be with him anymore because Samuel is no longer with him. And so this is the sad state of affairs that we find Israel in after chapter 15. But there's good news because in chapter 16 of what we'll be in next week, we see the king of God's heart is pointed out and chosen. So we'll get to David next week. But what can we learn from this passage real quickly? Well, <clears throat> we're going to do two things. Number one is we're going to answer a question that I think is very difficult. How in the world can we see in 1 Samuel chapter 15 a God repent of something? How does God regret or how does God repent? Because if you look in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15, uh, verse 11, verse 29, and verse 35, we have to look at these together because this really is a tough question. So first, look at verse 11. 
I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. But then you have verse 29, which seems to contradict verse 11. And also the strength of Israel, which is God, will not lie nor relent for he is not a man that he should relent. So we have a God who regrets, but we have a God who cannot regret, who cannot repent. But then again, in verse 35, it says, nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, what do we do with this? Because some people would look to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11, and also verse 35. And they would say, see, scripture speaks of a God that is open-ended. What I mean by that, people... People would use open theism would be the term that people would use. That God doesn't really know the future. That the future is determined by us, by what we do. And God just kind of relents to that. And so he chose Saul. Saul did what he did. And he regretted that he chose Saul because he didn't really know the future. He didn't know this was going to happen. And so we see here a God who doesn't, doesn't have all control. Well, we know that that can't be true because we can go to too many passages where we see about God's omniscience, his omnipotence, his, him being everywhere all the time. We, we see this about God. So we know that can't not be what's happening here in this, in this passage. So what is it? Well, I think what we see here is we see, yes, we see a God that regrets or repents and also a God that doesn't do that. And how can this be? Well, first we have to understand that God's repentance when he speaks in that language, is not like our repentance. When we repent, well, this is what we would say. I repent of this thing and I never want to do it again. That's what repentance is, right? We go before the Lord in our sin and we repent of our sin. And when we're doing that, we're saying, Lord, I never want to do this again because I know this is against you. I know that this is wrong. When God repents, when we read of God repenting here in scripture, what we see is we see God showing sorrow Right? We, we see him being sorrowful that he made Saul king, but this is the difference. He would absolutely do it again. There would be no ifs, ands, or buts about it. What we see is we, we see a God that has pain in the plan. Yes, there's pain in the plan, and we see how God actually grieves over man's sin. There is, there, that God has this. He, he hates sin. Right? He, he hates that sin is a, a part of our life. But yet, if God were to go back in time and say, let's do this all over again, it'd be done the exact same way because his plan is perfect. His plan cannot be changed. The, the commentary that's for sale out there, I'd encourage you to get Del Ralph Davis. He, he says it this way on page 162 of his commentary. He says, the paradox tends to split our minds but a little thought tells us that this God who both repents and does not repent is the only God we can actually serve. Only in the consistent God of verse 29, the one who cannot relent, and in the sorrowful God of verse 35, who regrets Saul being king, do we find the God worthy of praise? Here is a God who is neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his responses. Here is a God who has both firmness and feeling. If we cannot comprehend 
Maybe perhaps we can apprehend at least enough to adore this God. You see, these are difficult things for us to wrestle with, but they're worthy things to wrestle with because we see different characteristics of God here that make God who he is. A God who is never changing, who is, uh, who, who I said this last week, immutability. He's never changing and we can know that. And just by reading that he regrets King Saul, it shouldn't question the fact that he never changes. No, it, it shows us he's a God of feelings as well. Maybe you've met people who carry this demeanor about them that they never do anything wrong, right? And they're very hard and harsh. And you, you want to knock on them and say, do you have feelings in there? Do you have any emotions in there? I mean, I could found, be found guilty of this at times in my life. That's not the God we serve, right? He's a God, yes, who never changes, but he's also a God who would say, let the little children come to me and love on them and care about them. It's also the God who would weep at the tomb of his friend who he knew he was about to raise from the dead, but yet he would still weep for him. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we see in chapter 15. But then also, I think we need to spend just a few moments on chapter 15, verse 22 and 23, where he would say it is better to obey than to sacrifice. I think our men's group at one time had this printed on a shirt. So what we have being compared here is outward devotion to God versus inward devotion to God. The fact of the matter is, You can have all this outward devotion to God you want, but you can have nothing on the inside. But the reverse is not true. There is no way you can have a total devoted inside devotion to God, but yet have no outside devotion to God. That that doesn't exist. That person doesn't exist. It's just not there. Now, sadly, there are a lot of people who exist who have a lot of outward devotion to God but yet inside is a cold, beatless heart when it comes to serving him. You see, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, John would tell us, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This is very strong language. But this is what John is getting at. You can say you know God all you want, but if you're not living for him, then no, you don't. Because inward devotion will become outward devotion. But one of the things I think that we need to notice in this passage that that, uh, Samuel does not do is Samuel does not reject sacrifices here. He doesn't say God only wants obedience. He never wants sacrifices, does he? He says obedience is is better than sacrifices. It doesn't negate sacrifices. It doesn't say that this should never happen because there are times when God would call for that. What is here, and again, he's pointing to the fact of formal worship. I guess we could talk it that way. There is a point to formal worship. Formal worship to God is a very important thing. I don't want it to seem like it's not. That's not what I'm getting at here. But how this verse oftentimes plays out in our life is, is this way, you know, I just wrote a few things down. Going through the motions to please somebody. Right? You go through the motions of the formal worship experience to please somebody. Or maybe, maybe you do that to look good. You go through these motions because you have to, maybe. 
Maybe that's the case for some of you as students in here. That's why you come, because your parents want you to come. Yet inside, there's nothing really going on. Or, or maybe some of you who are older, you still come because your parents went. That, that's still why you do it. My parents raised me this way. Well, good for them. Well, what's that got to do with you? I mean, what? I got my hair cut this week, and the girl, they always ask me what I do. And to be honest, I hate when they ask me that, because I don't know what, what in the world they're going to think. Told her what I did. She's like, man, I should go to church more. Yeah, you probably should. <clears throat> but then she gone on to tell me, you know, I used to go to church all the time when my grandma was alive. Oh, that's interesting. My grandma would call me if I wasn't at church and I'd get in trouble. And she said, I actually had to go to catechism. I went through catechism and somehow she would know if I missed those classes. And she'd call me that night and yell at me. She said, but grandma died. And so now we only go on Christmas Eve. And then she just kept talking to me about it, you know, and I didn't really like the church that she went to. She went to Catholic church, so it was hard for me to encourage her to go to that and other things. Anyways, we had a conversation. I just want my hair cut. <clears throat> Get out of there. <clears throat> but what was she describing there? She was describing an attitude where sacrifice to her was better than obedience, right? The going to church thing was what was important didn't really matter what was in her heart. What mattered was this outside thing. And that's not it. That's not the case. But, but this would have described her. I'm going through the motions because grandma's here. But when grandma's gone, <laughs> that's gone. I don't even do that anymore. Or maybe some of us today are doing this in a way that we go through these motions of formal worship, but we do it to earn something. We're here for some special blessings. Pour it on me. My gas tank's empty. I need it filled for the week. That's why I'm here, so I can be filled to survive this week. That's outward. That's sacrificial above obedience is what that becomes. Or sometimes we're even guilty of adding to God's word so that we can look extremely holy or look very loving. You can think of some of the different religious groups you know, we won't use electricity. We won't take pictures of ourselves. We have these groups that have these little things. We've been there before, have we not as a church? Maybe not with the pictures and buttons and different things like that. But we've definitely had our own things in the past that we would say, if you're going to be a faithful Christian, then this, this, and this isn't part of your life. And if someone was to say, well, could you show me that in scripture? Yeah, it's implied. It's implied there. Christians don't do that. Well, why do we add to these things that scripture doesn't give us? Well, we do it to look holy. It's our sacrifice to the Lord. It, it's, what we, it's what we do. This verse really speaks to what I try to say over and over again from this pulpit and every time I have an opportunity. We serve God because of what he has done, not for what he will do for us. We serve God because of what's on the inside already. It comes out of us. I don't serve God so that then he will do something for me on the inside. He already has done enough for me on the inside. He's raised me from the dead. He saved me from my sin. He's poured the righteousness of Christ into my life. And so that he sees that in me. And so then, therefore, I want to serve him. Therefore, I want to obey him and sacrifice for him. I want to do both. But most importantly, I want to obey him. 
because that's what he calls me to. It's interesting because here what King Saul did is he, he tried to elevate beyond God's word, didn't he? That's what he did. He tried to elevate himself beyond God's word. Well, we brought him to sacrifice to God. Well, doesn't that just sound grand? I mean, if you're Samuel, doesn't that just sound so holy, King Saul? Man, you are a great king. God just told you to wipe everybody out, but you thought it'd be better to have a church service in the middle of it. So that is great. No, that's not the response here. It was sinful for Saul to try to elevate himself up and beyond the word of God. But again, we can look at him and get upset and think how dumb he is, but we get caught in this with things all the time, do we not? And I'm not trying to step on any toes here because I'm just as guilty of this as anybody else, but we try to give these things, these special things over to God that God really doesn't call for us in our life, right? Like, well, God, I spent my Friday night at a Christian concert. I'm way more holy than these people. Those tickets cost me 55 bucks. I got in the VIP circle. His spit hit me in the cheek. That's how close I was. Look at my holiness. This is how I spend my free time. Are we, what do I spend my money on? You know, I, I buy these religious items and pictures that go up in my home. Well, shoot, I, I, go to, I go to church service five times a week. I even go during the week just to pray in the sanctuary. Right, we, we add these things just like Saul. We act pious. Well, God, I went all the way to Branson and went to a Christian play. Some of you in here may be like me. I've been in Christian plays. I have. I've walked on this stage and done some really dumb things for Christian plays. Can I tell you something I've never found in all of Scripture where it tells me to be in a Christian play? Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying concerts are a bad thing. I'm not saying buying Christian things for your home to put in your home are bad things. I'm not saying any of that, but sometimes we elevate those things to show our holiness above and beyond God's word, all the while pushing the word of God and what he has obeyed us to aside. But I don't read my Bible. I don't spend time praying. I don't nurture and care and encourage for the members in my church. I don't lift them up. I don't often have people to my house for hospitality and fellowship purposes. When I attend church, I don't really listen to the pastor. I don't really let God seep down into my heart and and convict me of sin and, and change my life. When I pray, it's really actually just empty. It's repeated phrases over and over and over again. The church does Lord's Supper at night. I haven't had Lord's Supper in 15 years. I can't, I'm not going at night for that. But God, my family Bible's on my coffee table. But God, I, I, I've spent money on this and that. You see, what, what God tells us is obedience is better than sacrifice. Take all those other things and, again, good things. I'm not saying bad things, but push those aside. God doesn't care how many concerts you've been. God doesn't care what your home necessarily looks like. Are you obeying him daily is he your lord and savior and master and sustainer has he changed your 
heart so that you serve him because of that. The danger here is really the passage that scares most people and keeps them awake at night. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and 23. In the Sermon on the Mount, getting towards the end of the sermon, Jesus would say, I want you guys to know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then notice this. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, to put that more in a context of our day and age. God, didn't I go to church? God, I got a Toby Mac tattoo. Some of you don't know who that is. You're fine. You can still go to heaven and not know who that is. I promise you. We'll say these things. I never knew you. Why? Because to you, sacrifice was more important than obedience. And for my children, obedience is better than sacrifice. My people hear my voice. And they do the will of my father, Jesus would say. I really think this sermon is a gut check for all of us, including myself. I'm not trying to get anybody in here to doubt your salvation, because if you remember last week, I told you, if on Friday night, you are out sinning, that doesn't mean God loves you any less if you're his child, and that still holds true today. I still believe that just as much from what I'm saying this morning. If you are saved by God's grace, if your heart has been changed by him, if you have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, listen, you don't lose that because of some sin in your life. And so today, if you're just struggling with some sin, then yes, you need to repent before God. You need to come to him and seek forgiveness. But you come to him as a child of God, knowing this, he's, he's forgiven you. He's gonna welcome you with open arms because he finds pleasure in you, as chapter 12, verse 22 said. But there are some of you this morning, I have no doubt, in a group this size, this just has to be the case, that you find yourself very similar to Saul, where it's more about people pleasing. It's more about making me, make me look good in front of people. And when you come here, it's to look good in front of people. When you post what you do online, it's to make you look good in front of people, not God. This is, those who are, who, who are struggling with that, I would direct your attention to Matthew 7 and say, please take this very seriously. Are you a child of God? Have you really been saved by his grace? And are you obeying him like we are called to do as his children? That's a question that only you can answer. I can't answer that for you. We could make a pros and cons list and chart it out, I guess. I like those. I'm fine with that. But in the end, that's something between you and God that you need to answer. And I hope that today, as we sing this song here in a moment, that you'll take the time to really think about that question. Am I someone who obeys the Lord out of the love that is overflowing in my heart for him? Or am I more like King Saul, worried more about the formal, worried more about the outside, worried more about the appearance and what man's think? That's the question I think we need to answer this morning. Let's bow together. Let's pray.
God, I thank you for your word today. God, it's hard to read chapters 13 through 15 because there's just, <laughs> there's a lot of difficult things there. I know for me, it's, I can see myself quick to blame others for my own sin, quick to accuse, but yet, God, I need to be willing to fall on my face before you and to say, Lord, I've sinned. Just like we'll get to David here over the next few weeks, God, and as we see, the big difference with David is when David is confronted with his sin, which oftentimes, as me and Spencer were talking earlier, is way worse than Saul's sins. Yet David would fall on his face before you and say, against you, I have sinned, God. Or we just don't see that with Saul. God, I pray that the people in here this morning, those who make up MMBC, guests who are here, maybe people are here for the first time, I don't know. But I pray that we would all be people who'd be willing to fall on our face and say, I have sinned against you, God. To stop making excuses, to stop trying to build up our own kingdom, to stop trying to strengthen up our case so that on judgment day we can maybe argue with you back and forth of our good works that allow us to get in or our holiness or our righteousness. Because God, that's not what it's about. The question is, do we have Christ's righteousness bestowed upon us or not? And so God, I pray that everybody here would ask that question very seriously. God, I pray that you would break hard hearts this morning, help them to see the truth in their sin, to not belittle it like Saul would do, but to see it for what it is, as Samuel would point out in verse 23. And God, that we would confess that sin to you. So God, work in our hearts this morning. I know this can be very heavy, but God, the truth of these things should cause us to praise you as well because you are a God of grace. You are a God who has given us a way through Christ to have a relationship with you, to be able to serve you and to love you because we are loved, not in our own doing, but because of you. And so God, help us to worship you as well as we sing this last song in Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.